0: So God bless you all. How are you? How are you feeling? Yeah? Doing well. Doing well? Yes, many of us are away, as has been repeatedly said this morning. So I, again, I encourage you, be mindful of the faces that are not around, and um, and uh, let's pray for one another, let's encourage one another. Poor old Steve is up in Shark Bay, you know, somewhere somewhere out at sea. He said he was going to check in on the service this morning, but I think it depends on whether or not the fish are biting. yeah, 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 that's... That's where Steve is right now. And uh, poor old Warren and Wendy. I mean, last, was, last week they were somewhere in Budapest. I don't know where they are right now. Um, uh, but be praying for these guys, won't you? Yeah. Now, let's, let's, pr- let's do pray for one another. Let's encourage one another to realise that uh, we're always in his hands. That was the beauty of that song that we sang, you know. We're in his hands. John chapter ten, you know, I often refer to it. It's wonderful to know that we're in his hands and nothing can take us out of his hands. You know, if you and if you if you read that passage, what it says to you that we are in the hands of Christ, who is in the hands of Jesus. And so you are actually in two sets of hands. You're in the divine hands of God and the Son of God, and nothing, nothing can separate you from that. What a glorious thing that is, isn't it? To know that we're safe and secure in his hands. And, uh, so let's um Let's, let's continue on in this, uh, on this little series that we have been doing. If you're a visitor this morning, we have been in the book of Romans. We started in the first chapter and we've got halfway through. And, um, and we've been asking some questions. We've got to this passage um, which deals with the issue, a very relevant issue to our society today. And, of course, that's the issue of... of, um, of um, Homosexuality, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, however you want to term it. Um, um, we've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks. Um, as a Christian, this is, what, this is what the question has been. As a Christian, what do I say? As a believer in Jesus Christ, what do I say to the challenges that are being presented in defence of the normalization of homosexuality within our society, mm-hmm. and it's an important question for us because the world is rapidly being convinced that this normality is indeed a reality. Oh, look at that! Now I'm a rapper. This normality is indeed a reality, you know. And as I have pointed out, I pointed out last week, there is an appeal to the thinking. You are being a, your mind is being appealed to to think like this. There is an appeal to the thinking that the homosexual orientation is genetic and that it is supported by science, which of course, we hit on this last week, which of course it is not. But what has been planted in the psychology of our society is both an affirmation and an absolute statement. The affirmation um, being planted is that the homosexual orientation has, again, has a biological basis, and the absolute statement that is being made is that that you are being appealed to accept the absolute statement. So let me say it again. The affirmation is that homosexuality, homosexual orientation, has a biological connection. And the absolute statement is this. Therefore, if anyone has another or an, another opinion other than that, then that is nothing more than bigotry. That is nothing more than infringements upon their rights. And here's the thing: because of the success of this normalization. And I've got to say this, both outside and inside the church, we are seeing more and more revisionist scholars attempting to show that the Bible only prohibits only certain forms of homosexual act. And again, we saw this last week. They want to say that the Bible is only referring to the abusive acts, to the aggressive acts, particularly against young boys. They say that Paul didn't really understand the homosexual orientation and so he was highlighting an an action or uh, a a, prohibition... Shall I start again? A prohibition against those acts against young boys. And... um, Aggressive, you know, uh, anyway, we talked about it last week. <laughs> if you're interested, check back where we were. Um, and, of course, the position is that saying that is the Bible does not in any way um, prohibit faithful, the faithful homosexual relationships. And, again, we've looked at a couple of those revisionist justifications or arguments, if you will, whatever you want to call them. Uh, one of them we looked at last week was the fact that, you know, Jesus never ever ever condemned homosexuality. He never used the word homosexuality. Therefore, why should we listen to Paul? Therefore why should we listen to Moses? You know? And so Jesus loves us. Jesus is about compassion and mercy. And Jesus is running around carrying sheep over his shoulders. He loves the children and love and that sort of image is being painted. So he never spoke about these things, therefore nor should we, why should we listen to the homophobic rantings of Paul and the, and the, and the outdated views <laughs> of ancient Moses? And the, those sort of, that was the first argument um, that we looked at. And the second was that the New Testament statements about homosexuality have been mistranslated that what you read in your bibles particularly in the book of romans in the first chapter 1 corinthians chapter 6 1 timothy chapter 1 those references there that are referred to they say have been mistranslated and don't actually mean what your bible says they mean we looked at those last week those two arguments those two justifications if you will and um you know, and at the end of the day, after exploring them, it's very clear that they're just not reality. They're just not true. In fact, what they are is their lies. They're lies with an agenda to change the way you think about this subject. Now, I want to repeat something that I said last week, and forgive, forgive me for saying it. But here it is. Despite the despite the message that wants to normalise homosexuality in our society, the question again is for us: What do I say to this message? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that we cannot buy into it. We cannot allow this thinking to to take root within our consciousness. We need to understand. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Right, we need to understand that we cannot truly love those please hear this truly love those who identify as homosexuals without believing and being honest with them that such behavior is indeed sin we have to call it what it is we have to none of this talk about oh but it's not god's best for them You know, skipping around the urgency of it. And like all sinners, it is sin. And like all sin, it separates us from God. Remember again, Paul opened this entire chapter with this bold declaration that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God, and that's what is needed in this situation. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. We must unashamedly, Christian, proclaim the gospel. It is God's good news of salvation from sin through repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I've got to say it, Jesus Christ alone. The reality is this all of us have sinned right all of us have sinned all of us Paul tells us in the third chapter of Romans have all fallen short of the glory of God but there is mercy there is forgiveness to be found through Christ Jesus and so to tiptoe around pretending that homosexuality is not sin is not loving at all hopefully this morning we will get to the argument or the position that says, well, hey, love is love. We've heard that for years now, haven't we? Though? It's just love. And how dare we speak against the love that someone has for somebody else, albeit for somebody of their own, their own gender? How dare we? But we will see that argument. I don't know if I'll get there this morning. I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to. Um, it's not love at all. Not love at all. But at the same time, having said that, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. At the same time, um, we must realise that they, that the homosexual community, needs to experience the love of Christ through the people of Christ, just as you did, just as all of us did. Remember, again, it's Jesus that said, we love him not because we worked it out, but we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. You see, we can accept the person without approving of their choices. We can accept the person without approving of their choice to to be involved in a same-sex relationship. So we are called to love them. We are called to deepen our relationships with them. Unfortunately... The Christians have Christianity has dropped the ball for a long time. And we have all these sins over here that, are, that, that need forgiveness. But for some reason, we've taken the sin of homosexuality. We've separated it from sin. And we've placed it over here somewhere. And we've separated it over there. And for some reason, I don't know why, I don't know why, it has unique attention. No, 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 no. It's sin. The Bible is very clear. It needs forgiveness so we love them we deepen our relationship with them let me say it again but we hold firm to our biblical convictions it's been well said we never give up on the person and by the same time by the same token we never give up on the truth we never give up on scripture so we hold to what the scripture says about sexuality but we also hold to the truth what the scripture says about loving others who is our brother who is our neighbour? It's everybody, isn't it? It's everybody. Okay? Again, I also said this last week, I'm sorry, but it needs to be said before we launch into this next, this next, um, um, this next step. And that is, we don't fix anyone. See, that's what I mean by we have all the sins over here that we can trust God with, but the homosexual, that homosexual issue we put over here is if there is a, you know, there is something unique about this that we need to fix, and we isolate them in our thinking and the way we approach it. No, we don't fix anyone, regardless of what a person's sin is. What do we do? Pray. We pray and we point, don't we? We point them to Jesus. <coughs> Yes, we love them. Yes, we are friends to them. Yes, we support them. Yes, we journey with them. Again, that's where we have failed. Because we put it over here. We're journeying with all these people over here who are caught in adultery and have caught in, in marriages that are failing and are struggling in their relationships and their walk with God. We're walking and we're journeying with them. But over here, we've got this. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? How we dropped the ball? You know? No, no, no. We journey with them. We really must do. We love them. We are friends to them. Never compromising, always loving, knowing that it is not us that changes anyone. God is the one who changes lives, not us. He's very, very, very good at it. You know that? Very good at it. And again, here I go. This is not about winning arguments this is this is about being equipped to have confidence christian that you can have the confidence to know what the mind of god is on this issue it's not just about taking a battle stance and standing there and firing all our information as, as weapons at these people it's a not it, but no it's about not being afraid to engage in the confidence because in the in the con sorry in the Find the word for me. To engage in the conversation. Thank you. That's a hard word, isn't it? It's about having the confidence to be able to engage in the conversation, knowing that God's heart of love and compassion is for all mankind. That's what it's about. Yes, there has been a seismic shift in our society's sensibilities on this subject. Yes, the LGBT advocates have exerted an incredible influence upon our society everywhere. You know, through, through where? Through the education system. We've got so many teachers in this school, you're aware of it, in this church. Through the education system, through business, through politics, through sport, through the media, through the internet, again, through social media. But despite the shift in society's sensibilities, you and I have to know, and this is why we're doing this little series, you and I have to know and we have to be able to stand in the confidence that regardless of the seismic shift in society, we must have confidence in the fact that God has not changed. And God will not change. If we are on a journey and be a part of what God wants to do in that community, in our society, then we're going to be confronted by some hard questions hard questions. And so my question remains, what do I say? What do I say? So let's move forward. What do I say when someone accuses me of simply picking and choosing from the Bible? This is one of the accusations against the Christian position that homosexuality is prohibited by scriptures. We are accused of picking and choosing from the Bible. This this is this is the position. This is this is what it is. Um, We should not condemn homosexuality as a sin based upon the Old Testament scriptures, because the Old Testament scriptures also condemn other things (coughs) That we as believers have no problem with and so they say we are picking and choosing we're picking this from the old testament law and 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 not that you know and to that i understand the person who has no understanding of god's word is a clear case of hypocrisy you know understand how they come to that conclusion so they assert and say that God hates homosexuals. It's a hard sentence, isn't it? That's out there. They assert and say that God hates homosexuals. And then they they ask, but what about all those other things that God hates? Hear that word? That God hates in the Old Testament there. And what they've done is they've inserted this word hate in there and they have put it into our vocabulary that God has towards homosexuals. First thing you need to do, Christian, is not accept that. We don't accept that because we do not hate, do we? And they do not, and God does not hate. We don't use that terminology at all because God doesn't use that terminology at all. Look, God does hate some things. He's a just God. He's a holy God. He hates some things. If you go to Proverbs chapter 6, um, verse 16 through 19, God lists some of them for you. This is what God hates. He says he hates a proud look. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates feet that are swift to run towards evil He hates a false witness who speaks lies. And he hates one who sows discord amongst the brethren. Hear that? In the essence of what he's saying there, God hates prideful lying tongues. He hates evil hearts and hands that shed innocent blood. He hates those who deceitfully create strife and conflict and hostility amongst God's people. He hates such things and so should you and I. So should you and I. But nowhere, nowhere does it say that God hates homosexuals. He clearly says that homosexuality is a sin. And yes, God hates sin, but homosexuals he loves. And their sin he will forgive just as he will forgive any sin that someone comes to Christ for forgiveness for. So here is the first point I want you to understand. Never, ever accept when people say that God hates these people. Look, I know there are some... I know there are some crackers out there. I won't call them dumb crackers because that's not nice. But I know there are some crackers out there that hate homosexuals. And I know they run around with their placards and they write on their placards, God hates... You know but that's not God that's not God that's not the heart of God and it's not the heart of God in the child of God who knows the heart of God and I want you and I to have the confidence of knowing the heart of God in this situation okay so back to the point the point is, it is said that there are plenty of commands in the Bible that Christians don't follow today. Commands like, let me give you an example. In Leviticus chapter 19. Um, don't turn there, write this down. Leviticus chapter 19 says, you shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. It says, you shall not sow your field with mixed Seeds. It says, nor shall your garments, the clothes that you wear, be made of mixed, mixing linen and wool. You will not allow these things to come upon your body, God says. We go to Leviticus chapter 11 and it says you can eat certain types of animals. Right? It says you can eat animals that have cloven hooves and chew the cud. That's what it says. But if they chew the cud and they don't have cloven hooves, you can't eat that animal. But hey, if it does have a cloven hoof, but it does not chew the cud, then again, you cannot eat that animal. These animals are off limits to you. Hey, it says in that same chapter that you can eat fish. Yes, fish if they have both fins and scales. But if anything in the ocean doesn't have fins and scales, then you shall not eat it. In fact, it says that is an abomination unto you. You shall not eat it. Now, here's the thing. I understand the argument. Because none of us here worry about those sort of distinctions in our culinary pursuits, isn't that right? None of us have those distinctions. So the question is that's presented to us is why do we insist upon observing the commands against homosexuality, like in Leviticus eighteen, chapter chapter eighteen, verse twenty two, when it says, You shall not lie with a male as one as one lies with a woman, it says, it is an abomination. Why do we ignore the issues of diet and clothing and the Sabbath day and many other things, but yet we're picking on this issue of homosexuality? That's the argument. Here's the thing, and um, I hope I don't bore you this morning, but we have to understand that the commands given, the Levitical law that is given to Israel, it's called the Law of Moses, right? But it had distinct purposes for that nation. You know, there was the ceremonial law, right? And the ceremonial law that God gave to them in the more through the Law of Moses was to sit. It's to sit was to set Israel apart from all other nations. You see, you go back into that that time when the law was given no other no other people around there were running around worrying about whether or not they should eat this fish or that whether or not they should eat from that animal or that or whether or not they should you know stop working on this day no one else was thinking like that you know so God has given this ceremonial law to Israel because he wants to set them apart from all other nations that's the purpose behind it They were to be uniquely identifiable. Why? Because God had a purpose for that nation. And that purpose was both to reflect God's holy, righteous nature and to also identify just how far short of that holy, righteous, perfect nature mankind has fallen since the creation which in turn ultimately identifies what Israel's purpose was through the ceremonial law. Does anybody know what it is? It's again to point. It's to point all nations to the need and the absolute assurance that God is sending or a saviour is coming that can make us holy. So God gives them his law and he said, "If you break it, it is called sin, and where there is sin, God demands punishment. And for that reason, God gave them. So He gives them His law. Can you picture Moses coming down from Sinai? We picture Moses coming down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments, don't we? You know, he comes down with the Ten. But he didn't. That's not all that God gave him. God gave him the commandments, but He also gave him plans for the tabernacle didn't he also gave him instructions for the sacrificial system why because God knew and he wanted God's people to know that they couldn't keep that law because that law is based upon his holiness and his righteousness and man is not holy man is not righteous so God gives the law he gives the ceremony law that is pointing towards the need and the fulfillment of of mankind's need to be made holy. And so he gives a sacrificial system that their sin and their failing to keep the ceremonial law is there. And in that law, there is provision. Are you staying with me? What is the provision? The provision was the blood sacrifice, wasn't it? It's the blood sacrifice. And so a sacrifice would be brought And that sacrifice was an atonement for, a covering for the sins of the people. Something else, an innocent substitute, was to be bearing or would bear their sin. It's all a picture. It's all pointing somewhere, you know. And the whole thing is this. The whole thing is this. The whole law, And and I talk about these things here, and for some of us, it might seem a bit strange, right? Because it's foreign to us. You know, strict laws about what clothes you should wear and what food you should eat and things like that. And animals being sacrificed to pay for your sin. We don't think like that as a rule in our society. But in reality, if you want to stop and you want to think about what God was communicating, the whole law, from seemingly ridiculous commands, and I say that carefully, but from seemingly ridiculous commands to the sacrificing of animals, it all serves to make it clear that God is very serious. He's very serious about sin. And why? I know I've said it. Why? Because God is holy. Because he is different from all the gods of all the other nations that were around them, all the gods that they served. You see, he wasn't asking anybody to to engage in sexual prostitution like many of the gods of the pagans around them were. He wasn't asking anybody to sacrifice their children like the gods of Moloch was. He wasn't asking for any of that, none of that, because he wanted his people to reflect who God was. And God is holy. God is true. God is perfect. So I'll say it again. They were set apart to realize that man cannot be continuously perfect and holy like God is. And if man is not continuously holy and perfect like God is, then guess what? We can't know him. We can't enter into his presence. Ultimately, we can't know heaven. That is why when we come to the New Testament writers, it says that the law, you remember Galatians, it says the law is a tutor. Your Bible might say the law is a schoolmaster, is a schoolmaster with a purpose. Let me read it to you. This is Galatians chapter 3, and it says in verse 22, excuse me. It says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. None of us are perfect. The scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would come afterwards, that would afterwards be revealed, pointing towards Jesus. Therefore, the law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified, not by the clothes that we wear or by the food that we eat. No, that we might be justified by what? By faith. And then he says this, but after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, the law. So the law was designed to point man towards Jesus Christ. When we get to Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews chapter 13 reflects the law as the old covenant in the the same way, saying that it cannot perfect man. He says it again in Hebrews chapter 10, that it cannot perfect man. So it says a new covenant. He has made the first one obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old. and, And the writer says it is ready to vanish away it's no longer necessary. So Israel, the ceremonial law was given to them to point to the need of a saviour. Jesus is the point. You know, He's the point for all those strange, strict laws. He's the point for it because he has come along. He has fulfilled them. And in fulfilling them, he has ended the requirements of them so God's people are no longer set apart by not mixing fabrics, I'll say it again, or by not eating certain kinds of food. And aren't you grateful for that? Of course we are. We are set apart by faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy Son of God, who came to be, notice the language, who came to be a substitute Where did we see that? We saw that in the sacrificial law, didn't we? Who came to be a substitute. He he was the just sacrificing himself for the unjust. Clearly pictured in the Old Testament law. For all those that would place their faith in him. He came and he bore our punishment. The punishment for our sin. So the ceremonial law was the part of the law of Moses, I'll say it again, to point to the coming of Christ. To point to the absolute necessity for the coming of Christ. Jesus said of this to the religious leaders. You can read it in John chapter 5 and verse 46. He's speaking to the religious leaders who were challenging him. And he says, for you believed Moses, but you won't believe me. But Moses, he wrote about me, Jesus said. You know, he said the same thing to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. And before he ascended into heaven, he said this in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. He said, he said, he said to them, he said, he said, no, he said to them. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things might or no, not might, must be fulfilled, which were written where in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he said concerning me. And again, he's referring primarily to the ceremonial law that has been fulfilled. Its purpose has been fulfilled. But here we go. We're going to change now. Are you with me? Are you still with me? Yes, yes, yes. But the moral law of God, this is something else. The moral law of God reflects his nature. His nature, God's nature. And that will never, ever be obsolete. And it applies to all mankind, not just Israel See you cannot translate the, the ceremonial law, nor can you translate the civil law which was to govern Israel. you cannot translate those laws given specifically to Israel specifically for a purpose through that nation Israel. You cannot translate them to the church, but the moral law, the moral law, is for all humanity, all humanity. It's because the moral law or the truth of it is a reflecting or is a reflection, I should say, of God's eternal being. Please hear this. God's eternal being. They are not rules or laws that God has created. It's not what the moral law is. They are immutable. You know what immutable means? can't be changed they are immutable they are dependable they are qualities of his nature reflected in his creation they exist you know why they exist because god exists that's why the 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 bible describes god as omnipotent right all-powerful all-seeing omniscient God is able to do whatever God wants to do. Here's the thing, but whatever God wants to do will always be consistent with his moral law. It always will be. He never ever will set out to do something that contradicts who he is, his nature, his character, his moral law. It does not change. That's why the New Testament comes along and clearly, explicitly states That homosexuality is both immoral and against nature it is unnatural look are you close to romans chapter one quickly quickly turn back to romans chapter one let's read it again we need to see this so romans chapter one it says in verse 26 i know we've looked at this a lot over the past few weeks but it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the what? The natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with women committing what is shameful. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that it is sin because it is against God's original order in creation, which is a reflection of what? His nature. It's the moral law. Jesus refers to this when he was questioned about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. His answer to the, to the question is this. You, have you not read? He says, you should know this. Have you not read? He, that is God, made them in the beginning. He's referring back to the original creative purpose of mankind. Have you not read, he made them in the beginning, he made them male and he made them female. And he said, for this reason, that reason, because how God created them, they shall leave, he shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then it says, therefore, this is what Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Because this is God's moral law. Jesus is describing God's original creative order and Paul is saying man this whole chapter of Romans Paul is saying that man has abandoned that and has exchanged the natural use for an unnatural use against nature to say that we as Christians are picking and choosing because Christians no longer regard eating shellfish as wrong, because we like our crayfish, so we're now going to just disregard that passage of Scripture. To say that that's why we, choose, we, don't, we choose, don't choose that law against shellfish, but rather we are happy to choose, because of our bigotry, happy to pick and choose against homosexuality. That's not true. That statement is ignoring the unchanging moral law of God. I've got to say it again, that reflects His very nature. And we all know it. It's been placed in us. Hebrews tells us that God writes God's law where? From the heart. He says, I'll put my law in their hearts and in their minds. I will write it to them. (coughs) Homosexuality is transgressing the design by a loving creator. No, we are not picking and choosing, as the critics say, because we want to. No, no. We've got to recognise the prohibition against homosexuality wasn't designed to teach a temporary lesson like the ceremonial law was, like the food and like the fish and all those things. No, 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 no. But homosexuality tragically distorts the very nature of God expressed through his original intention for marriage. And marriage ultimately, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, is there to express the reality of the heart of God's nature towards his church. He is the what? The husband. We are the what? the bride it's a distortion of the very purpose of creation against the very nature of God's moral law we need to understand this and we need to be able to be we need to be confident in it so that we can love these people so we can stand with these people you know what this does have you noticed something you might have got halfway through this morning and thought, you know, Chris is not talking on subject. He's left the subject. Did you feel like that for a moment? You know? I'm mm-hmm. oh, good. I'm glad. Because what we do... This, this, I, I was, I, there was one commentator that says the most, most wonderful thing about this objection to, the re, to, um, uh, to, to our position on homosexuality is that for us to answer it, we ultimately have got to take them to Jesus. We've got to enter into the reality of who Jesus is. You can't have this conversation with a homosexual person without giving them the gospel. And that's what we want to do, right? That's what we want to do. And the reason that we pick and choose if they want to say that is not because it suits us, but because the moral law is repeated in the New Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament. Whereas all those other laws, ceremonial laws, get no mention. Why? Because they're fulfilled, aren't they? Um, Is that enough? Is that enough? Okay. Okay. I'll invite the team back. Oh, look, sorry, we've still got another objection to handle. Love is love. We're not going to do it this morning. I'll do it next week. Um, So do you see now... Oh, yeah, we are out of time. You know, I always, I generally begin our service on 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 Communion Week by by um, encouraging you to allow the ministry of the Word to prepare your heart to gather around the Communion table. Sorry, I didn't do that this morning. You know, um, but here's the thing: what Paul is saying in Romans chapter one is simply this. That God created us with a purpose. And that purpose was revealed to us as God revealed himself to us. Firstly, he says in the creation, right? In that passage there. God revealed himself to us in the creation. But he says, he says that mankind has exchanged the revelation of who God is. For something else, didn't it? Do you remember reading that? He has mankind has exchanged, and it says he worships the creature rather than the creator. And when you stop and you analyze that, he worships the creature rather than the creator. The creature that he is worshipping is his own desires. It's his own passions. Ultimately, it's his own sin. And he makes laws to be able to justify his sinful desires and passions. What is it when man worships the creature rather than the creator? You know what ultimately it boils down to? Self-worship. Worship of self. And putting my passions and my desires ahead of what God has called holy which will lead us... I'm only saying this as the the elements come around because this is going to lead us into next week's discussion, and and, and I like to call these discussions um, about the issue of, well, it's just love. It's just love. And you have no right to question it. Um, It's love of self, ultimately, is what it is. It's denying... The holy law of God, the, the moral law of God, that ultimately brings us... You know that statement that a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, people are saying these days? It's not God's best for them, you know? The moral law of God is God's best for us. It always will be. Okay. God bless you. you. You've done really well. God sent his son into this world to die upon a cross for us. The just for the unjust. Have you stopped and thought about that? Who we were? how we we were being led and directed by our own sinful passions, desires. We were putting them on the throne of our lives. And if we're really honest, if we're really, really honest, it was doing us no good. No good at all. God comes along and shows us his love. He shows us his compassion. He shows us his mercy. He shows his willingness to To give absolute everything that he possibly can so that our hearts can be changed. So that we can see as God sees. Do you remember that? Do you remember becoming a child of God saying, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you, Lord God for coming into my life and empowering me to rise above those things that were dragging me down. And thank you for giving me eyes to see, to see as God sees. To not be judgmental, not to be um, aggressive, not to be clamoring to rise above everybody else, not treating everybody else as a means to an end accepting those who bless me and rejecting those who are in my way. No, no, no. But seeing as Jesus sees, seeing with his heart, it's all because we've been cleansed. It's all because his perfect righteous blood has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. Isn't that a glorious thing? You're a child of the living God and has given you a heart of compassion for all mankind. That's why this subject is so important for us. It's the the greatest hurdle for the church right now. To be not judgmental, to not be vindictive, to not be attacking, to not be living in fear, but to bring the very gospel, the very power of God that can change a person's life and give them their best life. If I can use that expression. It's all because Jesus (coughs) died. Father in heaven, we thank you.